Welcome to the Grad School Femtoring Podcast, the place for first-gen students of color to prepare for grad school. This is Dr. Yvette Martinez Fu, and I will be serving as your femtor, providing you with tips and tricks and everything else you need to know to get into and successfully navigate grad school. For over 10 years, I've been helping first-gen students of color get into top grad programs in their field, and I'm really excited to support you on your academic journey too. Are you a first-gen BIPOC undergraduate, graduate student, or working professional looking to work on your personal development and improve your productivity in a sustainable way? Then join my six-week Grad School Femtoring Academy, a group coaching program specifically designed to help first-gen BIPOCs overcome obstacles and achieve success in their personal and professional lives. Through weekly workshops, live group coaching sessions, tutorials, exercise, lots of bonuses, and a community of like-minded individuals, you'll receive the support you need to feel confident in your ability to meet your goals without sacrificing your wellness or burning out. The program is open for enrollment now, and the last day to sign up is May 4th. Please contact me at gradschoolfemtoring at gmail.com for more info. Welcome back, everyone, to another episode of the Grad School Femtoring Podcast. This is your host, Dr. Yvette. And today I have a fun and insightful episode all about being weird and wonderful and how to embrace your neurodivergence. I know I've got a lot of neurodivergent uh, listeners uh, because y'all reach out to me. I myself am a fellow neurodivergent Latina Chicana. And so I'm super excited to have our speaker today. Our guest is Izzy Chea, and she is a Dominican Mexican American creative educator, storyteller, and mental health advocate. After a late diagnosis of ADHD at age 35, she took her content creation talent to Instagram where she has experienced tremendous growth through reels, expressing incredible relatability and honesty of daily life as a newly diagnosed neurodivergent Latina. She holds a BA and master's degree in psychology and human development and lives in Houston, Texas with her husband, two boys, and a rescue cat and dog who I just found out love to trade beds. Welcome to the podcast, Izzy. Thank you so much. That was a really funny intro. (laughs) I'm just picturing your cat and your dog (laughs) trading beds. Big dog, small bed, little cat, big bed. (laughs) It's quite funny. That that is weird and wonderful too. (laughs) Yes, it is. So I'm uh, happy to be here. (laughs) Thank you. Uh, for the folks who um, are learning or new to your work, I would love for you to tell us a little bit more about who you are, about what you do, and also whatever you're comfortable sharing about your backstory, your background, and how you became who you are today. Okay, great. That's a loaded question. I know it's a big <laughs> one. So that's why I'm like, that's why I think it might be longer than half an hour. <laughs> that's Okay. So yes, as uh, Doctora Yvette um, had said earlier, um, I am a multi-passionate creative person um, who happens to be neurodivergent and Latina. 
Um, I had, like many neurodivergent um, women, a late diagnosis of ADHD at the age of 35, um, and a very long and colorful road led to that diagnosis. Um, what initially sparked me seeking out uh, mental health help um, was a dark and scary period of burnout. Um, I, uh, at the time, was, I had just moved my business of being a music educator um, online as a response to the pandemic. Mm. And um, taking that on fully with a studio of almost 50 students, um, homeschooling my two boys, uh, my husband being home uh, since COVID was uh, on a rampage, um, and just feeling overwhelmed on the daily with normal day-to-day -day tasks, um, I knew that I needed help. Um, mm -hmm. Those anxious feelings and depressive episodes were coming more frequently and more strongly. And um, it was just something that I, I knew that I could not weather it without um, some extra support. Um, so that's what led me to um, seeking out a diagnosis, um, not necessarily for ADHD, um, but more so uh, just mental health uh, support and help. Um, through the diagnosis um, of generalized anxiety disorder and mild depression, um, I was actually sent to an ADHD specialist as a result of anti-anxiety medicine not working. <laughs> um, oh. Yes, it was it was quite interesting. Um, after speaking with my mm -hmm. provider about my experience with the anti-anxiety medicine and explaining to her that I did not feel any better, that's when she started to suspect that the root causes of my anxiety may not be um what she initially thought so that's when she started expanding her um her knowledge and and just her circle of um, people that she trusted to refer me to and i ended up in the care of an adhd specialist who through the course of three to four months and a lot of talking and journaling was able to determine that i was in fact suffering from ADHD inattentive type. And that was the root cause of my anxiety and my depression. Um, I knew that was true after um, finally ending up on um, a medication for ADHD and my symptoms improving dramatically. So <laughs> that's, that's how I ended up with the diagnosis of ADHD. Um, I was not aware of it at all. That's what I was um, going to ask. <laughs> I was going to say, did you suspect? Because I think that for some of us, we, we have a feeling like something, there's gotta be something, but we don't know what it, what it is. <laughs> right. Yeah. You know, it, we're so used to being tossed aside and said, oh, you must just be anxious. Oh, you, you're just depressed. Try this out. But even after that initial wave of medication for anxiety, um, it just did not 
it did not do anything to mm. reduce those anxious feelings that I was having. So um, after, you know, going through that process with my doctor, um, I had so much learning to do, right? I, I get this diagnosis and I'm like, what? Come again? I had no idea what that even meant. So after learning about that, um, she encouraged me to do some research and some reading. Um, the rabbit holes. The <laughs> rabbit hole opened up and I fell in. And I fell hard in that rabbit hole enough to make me want to begin documenting my experience as I learned about my neurodivergence, mm. uh, which ended up <laughs> creating um, an Instagram page, which many of you, if you're listening at this point in time, have discovered me at this point. <laughs> um, it, I have a talent for storytelling. I have a talent for uh, taking very large and complicated topics and breaking it down into digestible pieces of information that happens to also be entertaining um, in a way that just helps you relate more um, with who I am as a person and then almost take me out of the equation and put yourself in mm. because then you start to see these these symptoms are things that you may be going through, right? So you picture yourself dealing with the fact that you have literally walked by a pile of something <laughs> for three weeks and it's still there, right? Every time you walk by that thing, it's still reminding you of it, right? Um, not remembering to um, uh, turn in permission slips for your kids' field trips. And then they're frantically asking for those permission slips. And you're just like, I thought I did that already. And it's just sitting over there, right? Um, the, the amount of um, emotional dysregulation that can come into play. And I feel like that in particular is a, um, a topic within uh, the neurodivergent community that symptoms wise, we don't have a lot of information in the DSM. Um, we don't have emotional regulation as something that's clinically mm. defined as part of this uh, neurodevelopmental disorder. So Can that you... opens up even more rabbit holes. <laughs> I was going to say for, for folks who are not familiar with that term or phrase of emotional regulation versus dysregulation, can you um, say a little bit more about that? Sure. So emotional regulation is your brain's ability to understand and really see what emotion you're feeling, define it, and then process it um, in a manner that makes sense to the world around you, right? Society, right? So when we're looking at something like emotional dysregulation, that would be you know, the opposite of it. You experience an emotion, you don't have the words or the processing power to define what it is you're actually feeling, which leads to even more distress about it. And then how you react as a result of those emotions may not be socially acceptable. So this 
type of feeling that you've got, you know, being emotionally dysregulated, being on high alert, um, feeling overwhelmed mm-hmm. quite frequently, um, and even experiencing emotions like not just, you know, sadness or um, overwhelm, you could be experiencing things like um, anger, like mm-hmm. really big anger outbursts. You could also be experiencing things like euphoria, right? Mm-hmm. It's, it's, it's dysregulated in a way that it's like at an extreme, right? And society may or may not understand how you're expressing these things, right? Because it's not something that you would normally see, right? So that's kind of a little mini breakdown of uh, emotional dysregulation. Um, so hopefully that's- that helped a little. Yeah, it, it it does. And also, um, you know, I was I already knew I wanted to ask you a little bit about the fact that your the work that you do with your social media content and storytelling, there's an aspect of it that not only includes like sharing more about you and your background and your day to day life, but also the mental health advocacy. And so now that I've heard more about, you know, your experience with depression and anxiety, and then even, you know, hearing more about emotional dysregulation. I I would love to hear more about the mental health advocacy part of it, because, you know, when when I see the, the content, I have found myself to also be entertained and also feel seen, even though I, um, don't have ADHD or I'm not a ADHD, but I am neurodivergent in different ways, highly sensitive, depression, anxiety. And I have an autistic husband and son. So we've got like different ways that we all interact with the world. Um, So I can find things that I can relate or that I can see, you know, in uh, my own family. I'm wondering like the tie-in with the mental health advocacy, you know, like what, um, why is that so important? And and how I feel like how has this um, the work on mental health advocacy like what role does it play with how you view your neurodivergence or like how does do those two kind of connect? I, I know you you kind of tied it in with your backstory, but I want to hear more about it. Sure. No, it's it's a great question and it's so important too. Um, you know being a Latina myself, being a Latina yourself, we understand how in our particular communities, mental health stigma is massive. Mm -hmm. And it still affects um, so many people um, in uh, across the world um, today. And a lot of the unique um, views of how uh, being a part of the Latina community um, play, uh, plays into that, um, whether that be through um, the lack of culturally competent providers, um, religion, trauma, mm-hmm. um, immigration, uh, racism and colorism, all of these things sort of take a, a, a role in why the cultural, stig- the cultural stigma exists so strongly, particularly for Latine. Um, and so I've sort of like carved my way into this little corner where I have declared that as a neurodivergent Latina myself, I find that the best people that I can help and uh, help 
the most uh, help deeply and strongly are the people that I know and love, the culture mm. that I know and I love. So by elevating our stories, by educating and learning and speaking and teaching on these things, I find that many, many, many people have found so much value in hearing these stories and understanding why these connections exist, right? There's, I've been, um, I've given several talks on um, the link or the intersection between neurodivergence and being Latine and why that cultural stigma um, perpetuates um, across Ooh, generations. I want you to say more. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. I have so much. Yeah. Um, I, it's, it's a talk uh, that has been very widely received um, positively. Um, and I even had enough, um, uh, I guess, assertiveness is, or, or you know, drive to mm -hmm. apply to present at a national conference nice. for psychology. I didn't get the talk, but <laughs> at least I had the guts to do it and try, right? I love that. Because yeah. these are the things that, that there's only so much advocacy you can do on social media, right? Mm -hmm. There's a limit, right? And if what I'm saying and my purpose is to make a difference in the lives of BIPOC neurodivergence, especially Latine, at, coming from an immigrant family, then I have to put myself out there, mm -hmm. right? I, I have to stick out my neck because the people that are relying on me don't have the means to do so. They don't have the platform. They don't have the voice or the drive. And I am happily putting myself out there for them as a means to an end for the, that advocacy work that I, I hold so dear. So that's kind of where I go. <laughs> Uh, um, I love that because I feel like we need to have more of these conversations. And um, oh, yeah. I think that, you know, when, as someone who you know, has a similar cultural background or in, you know, growing up in a Mexican household, mental health was not a thing. It did, it, mental health issues were non-existent or perceived as non-existent. And if you had any issues, it was a you issue. It was you are lazy, you are X, you are sensitive, you are exactly. too much. Um, but <laughs> that's like for, for anybody who could be struggling with mental health issues yeah. um, to some extent. But then if you have kind of multiple struggles or, or um, are part, I feel like neurodivergence, at least for me and my experience, it's only been recently more uh, shared widely, like on social media in the last couple of years. Whereas for instance, my my son was diagnosed uh, on the autism spectrum when he was three. And I recall at you know age one and a half, he was getting assessed and getting speech therapy. And I would get comments from people saying like, why are you trying to find something wrong with him? There's nothing wrong with your child. And I thought to myself, what are you talking about? I'm trying to get support and resources and education and and why not if this could be helpful? And even when he got the official diagnosis, people didn't believe us. 
<laughs> and yeah. it was as if that label was a bad thing. And for us, it was such an incredible gift because then we started, we, I went into that rabbit hole. The, <laughs> I didn't know anything about it. I went into that rabbit hole. We, my husband and I both went into it and then we realized, oh shit. <laughs> like, you know, like it's, it's like, oh, you're like that. <laughs> like check, check, exactly. check, check. And then I, that's when again, like started learning more about other forms of neurodivergence. And that's when I was like, oh, wow. How many folks are out there? Um, not knowing and a big part of it is because it was not encouraged based on their background their culture or their you know you name it um so anyway that was a rant just to say that I'm glad that you're doing this and I know today's topic is about embracing your neurodivergence weird and wonderful and so I want to hear what does that mean to you when you think you know how embracing your neurodivergence what does that look like that's a good question. I know I say that for every question you say. <laughs> well, embracing neurodivergence, I believe you can find a home um, within yourself um, when you are able to embrace and accept who you are fully, right? Now, what does that look like? That in particular may look like finding comfort in your routines. That might look like sensory things. Yes. <laughs> that may look like listening to your favorite classical symphony <laughs> on repeat for two weeks. Yeah. It just feels comfort comforting to me, right? It may feel like having um, a community of people who understand your mannerisms and your idiosyncrasies. You know, it's embracing neurodivergent joy in mm. all of its expressive ways. It could be flapping, it could be spinning, it could be dancing, it could be singing. And in my case, it's it's pretending to conduct giant symphonies. <laughs> <laughs> I love to pretend I am Gustavo Dudamel. <laughs> That's my thing, right? Um, I'm home alone and I'm working on chores like any mother would in her household, but I'm the one that puts on a, a booming Beethoven concerto, right? And I mm. just go to town, right? It's fun. It's, it's being able to embrace what you love and express it in a safe and um, comforting way that, that's special to you. Um, now, personally, those are those are those things that matter to me most right now when you're looking at something like a neurodivergent community now finding a neurodivergent community is especially difficult um when you're in an in-person setting right mm -hmm. it's hard to understand the nuance do you disclose to somebody do you right. not disclose to somebody um you may find that if you disclose to a close friend or family member, they may reveal their neurodivergence to you as well. Mm -hmm. And you have that in common, right? Now, in person, it can be very tricky, right? Um, but that's why I feel that online communities have an edge in this case, because you feel safe enough to be who you are, whether that's 
that be behind a screen or behind your phone. Um, but you're able to converse with people that really get you and they really understand your struggles and they really do help you feel less alone. And that I feel is the ultimate goal of, of finding a neurodivergent community is just making sure you don't feel alone by seeing other people's uh, struggles and how they're working through them. Also, maybe learning some tips, strategies, and tricks. You see that what's possible for you, right? You see people succeeding. You can see yourself succeed. You see them struggling too, and you understand because you struggle as well. So it's it, it makes the world feel a little bit smaller in a way. You have your corner, you have your, your gente, your family, your people, uh, your humans, as weird and wonderful as they are. Um, and you just, you feel at home. And that's kind of what I'm getting at with a million words. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, hearing you talk about embracing your neurodivergence, I think that there's also um, a lot more to say about embracing the things, not just that you love about yourself, but like your gifts or your talents, because I know that in the world of like getting a diagnosis, for instance, um, there's, there's so much emphasis on the deficit. There's so much emphasis on the struggle. Um, there's the, and, and I understand that it comes from a place of getting support and resources, but then at the same time, every person I know that's neurodivergent has, I mean, everybody has skills and talents. And if anything, it's like, it's even more like intense or even more of a stronger interest or so for instance, just like a quick little snippet about like my, uh, from my family. So my son recently um, got assessed at his school to get more additional support. And um, and then they they I met with the school psychologist and she told me, oh, your son, you know, is twice exceptional. And I'm like, what do you mean twice exceptional? Yeah, 2E. And oh, it's he's twice exceptional because he's gifted and talented, but also he needs learning supports because of his autism. And I thought to myself, well, that doesn't surprise me because a lot of people I know are amazing. Like they're gifted, they're talented. You are too. <laughs> yeah, I was in those and, programs too. <laughs> and I remember, it was so funny because my son's in fourth grade and I was like, oh my gosh, when I was in fourth grade, I got labeled gifted and talented. But for me, it actually, it wasn't, uh, you know, you'd think that it, it's a great thing, but it, it reinforced my perfectionism and it made it really hard for me to thrive and do things outside of what I knew I would do okay at. Um, so it, it was not always a good thing, but in, in your case, you're saying embrace your neurodivergence. And it, it, I can't help but think about like how many of us focus so much on the struggle that we don't like fully embrace the really amazing, unique things and skills and talents about our, that come from just being ourselves. Like for me, I didn't fully you know, realize like, wow, I'm pretty awesome. I'm really good at X, Y, and Z until I started to embrace my, my identity and like my full self. And um, I really love that message though, the message of embracing your neurodivergence because we live in a world where that is stigmatized. Yeah. So 
Absolutely. <laughs> you know, it's uh, someone just knocked on my door. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, I thought you didn't have a door. <laughs> the the front the door. Other one door. <laughs> Um, I, I wanted to, to ask a, just a follow-up question. Um, so we're having this conversation and I feel really comfortable chatting with you. And I know some folks are going to relate to this conversation, but there are also going to be some folks who are like, what is this term neurodivergence? Like I keep hearing about it. Maybe they're less familiar uh, maybe it's their first time. You never know. Um, mm -hmm. So what are some things that you wish that folks who are less familiar or don't don't themselves kind of know much about the topic? What do you wish that they knew? Are there any myths that you think uh, are worth debunking or just in general kind of uh, in general information that might be helpful for folks? Yeah, sure. So um I'm glad you asked this question because um, there's a lot of, um, I guess, misunderstanding about the term in particular, um, as well as the term um, neurodiversity. So let me clear up the air a little bit. <laughs> um, now, when we're talking about neurodivergence or a neurodivergent person, um, this consists of a, it's a self-identifying term. It is not a clinical term, um, but it would encompass things like ADHD, autism, dyslexia, OCD, bipolar, borderline personality disorder, um, even so far as anxiety, depression, um, and epilepsy, down syndrome anything where you see the brain itself is um, not considered typical right it's it diverges from the norm so you can identify as neurodivergent if you suffer or you are um, living with any of these conditions now you can also have these conditions and not identify as neurodivergent and that's perfectly valid and fair. There's no, no rule in a book that says you have to say that you're neurodivergent. It just doesn't exist, right? I do identify as neurodivergent because it affects every single level of my life and who mm -hmm. I am, right? So I have no issue identifying with that term, okay? Now, when we look at a term like neurodiversity or Sometimes I hear people say they identify as being neurodiverse. That's actually incorrect. Because <laughs> neurodiversity gets to the root of diversity, right? When we think of diversity, a great example is biodiversity, right? You have different types of creatures, animals, um, plants, organisms, all across the world, right? That's biodiversity, right? Now, when we look at something like neurodiversity, this would include humans that identify as neurodivergent, as well as humans who identify as neurotypical. Now, neurotypical is what most people would consider a person that does not suffer or live with the condition 
like I previously mentioned before, right? Now, a neurotypical person can later identify as a neurodivergent person if they feel that whatever condition that they're living with is affecting their daily life. And that's perfectly valid and fair. <laughs> so as we're looking at these terms, and it's very fluid, right? These terms are not clinical, like I said before, but it's just a way for people to group themselves and feel belonging in certain groups um, to better build those communities in which you feel safe and comforted. So that's that's a little bit of a you know a word lesson um, with some of those uh, terms: neurodivergent, neurodiversity, and neurodiverse. So and neurotypical. So hopefully that helps a little bit. <laughs> that does. That does help. Um... I, I appreciate you kind of expanding on the differences and also how neurodivergence, uh, neurodiversity, how, uh, you know, identifying as being neurodivergent in particular is not necessarily like you're clinically diagnosing yourself as a right. form of identification. And so I think that is a, a powerful thing for folks to know because there's such a, there's so much, um, there's so many debates around diagnosis and self versus self-diagnosis. So like getting an official diagnosis, self-diagnosis. And there's also debates about um, validity versus the lack of access to getting, um, yes. getting a diagnosis. And also for whom it could be safe or unsafe to have a diagnosis. And so I think that Again, you know, if we're not talking about diagnosis per se, but we're talking about identification, there is so much uh, power in that and in being able to be part of something and to form communities, like you said. So thank you for, for clarifying that. Yeah, absolutely. Yes, I, I really like that you brought up the point of access, because when you are self-identifying or self-diagnosing, which is a, a a booming thing that's happening as of late. Um, I personally feel that self-diagnosis is a valid thing because I understand the barriers to mental health care and the barriers um, to receiving um, accurate diagnoses um, for BIPOC, queer, LGBTQ, um, and non-dominant groups yeah. across the world. It's it's virtually non-existent um, in many countries across the world and in many cultures. Again, that's bringing home the point of it, if you grew up in a culture where they didn't believe in mental health, <laughs> then how, how do you expect that person to go about receiving a diagnosis for something which they identify with 98% online <laughs> with other people um, that are similar to them. How do you expect them to, to go about and get those diagnoses? In many countries, there are waiting lists. Mm. In other countries, it's too darn expensive to see somebody. So I don't think at all um, that people should be dismissing self-diagnosed um, individuals um, and many of those people who have self-identified or self-diagnosed themselves with a uh, neurodivergent um, condition, um, 
if they do in fact eventually get that access to care, then they will have all of the knowledge and all of the power to present to their provider all of the research that they have done for this. So it's only going to equip them with, with more, right? And there's nothing wrong with learning more about who mm -hmm. you are as a person. Thank you. Thank you for, yes. for that, because I, I I think that that's an important part of the message as well. The the access, the lack of access. And then, you know, everybody has a different opinion about diagnosis. But I, I definitely <laughs> can um, or I feel like I am I, feel, I agree with you in that I I do think and I've actually like heard from other folks who are psychiatrists who who say that, you know, in, in a lot of cases, the self-diagnosis is, I mean, how can you, how can you argue against it when, like you said, it might, you might be 90% in terms of like characteristics, traits, and even there's a lot of questionnaires available online. Mm -hmm. um, so, uh, I mean, we all get to determine how we identify. And then in terms of diagnosis, it's, you know, up to you to decide how you feel about that. But it's all about like, to what extent does it help you? Does it, to what extent does it uh, help you get to know yourself better? To what extent can you kind of learn more about how to navigate this world being yourself? Um, so I, I don't know, I, I'm, I'm kind of, I fall on the bandwagon of more information is better, more support is better and respect people and the way that they identify. So if they identify, you know, like, like if they identify as autistic or as a person with autism, like you can go on about and on about like different forms of identification. Um, yeah, because yeah, I never, I was gonna go on a rant right now, but I thought, okay, <laughs> I'll move on to my next question. <laughs> All right, so we're getting close to wrapping up. I wanted to ask you, what words of advice do you have uh, to share. I um, primarily have listeners who are first-gen BIPOC students or college and graduate students, some early career professionals. Uh, for that population who um, th they themselves are identifying as neurodivergent and they can they want to learn more. They want to learn more about how to embrace, you know, who they are, how to embrace themselves more, more fully. Uh, is there any words of advice or even resources that you've learned about that have been helpful tips, anything that you would like to share? Yeah. Yeah. Um, first of all, the listeners that are tuning in here, um, I, I just want to say um, nothing is wrong with you. Oh. Right. You are beautiful and you're special exactly how you are. Right. The world can adapt to you, right? I always hear this, like, you adapt to the world. And it's like, no, I want you to flip that upside down and turn it inside out. The world will adapt to you. The people that are meant to be with you, they will find you, right? You will find your people, right? Um, the, the idea, this is a very important stage of life. Um, being in college or a new college graduate or just diving into, you know, your early 20s. This is a super formative uh, time of your life. And 
I didn't have any of the answers of mm-hmm. who I was at that time. I didn't know what I wanted to be. I changed my major seven times, right? And I ended up with the the grandest thing at the end of, of all of my college career. The only thing I could decide on after all of that education and time was the fact that I all I wanted to do was help people. Mm. That was the, 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 the big answer, right? Mm-hmm. If someone would ask me what I wanted to be, I'm like, I don't know, but I want to help people. That was the only thing I could say. So if you don't have those answers and you're listening to this episode and, and you are getting pressure for choosing something or making yourself take advantage of, of your 20s with all of your energy and go forth, right? No, I say take the time you need to find who you are. And you may not have the answers in your 20s. You may not even have it in your 30s <laughs> <laughs> or your 40s. But if you can come to a general conclusion of what it is that you bring to the world and how you want to apply it, I said I wanted to help people, right? Mm-hmm. I help people by educating. I help people uh, find their joy in music. I help people find each other, right? These are the things I I use my talents in storytelling and speaking and teaching to make these things happen. And I know I'm helping people. It's it's at that, it answers the question, right? Mm -hmm. But here I am at 37 and I realize that this is this is this is it, right? <laughs> this is what I'm doing right now, right? Um, so don't worry if you don't have those answers. Don't worry um, the time and space that you give yourself to learn more, to understand yourself better, and to express yourself authentically, then those answers will come, right? They will come. And if you've been lucky enough to be around people that are supportive of that self-discovery journey, then you'll have um, the support that you need to keep going. And if you don't have those people around you yet, we need to do some uh, work to find those people because there are people Mm -hmm. that I bet would adore you and love to have you in their crew, in their hangout spot right Mm -hmm. your chill peeps there there are people there your community is there they're just waiting for you so i'm I'm glad that you said that it's a great way to wrap up today especially thinking about weird and wonderful because i think a lot of us can i can relate to feeling weird or awkward in some way shape or form (laughs) all right so for folks who um who saw themselves or heard something that they felt that they could relate to or learn something and they want to um, keep learning more, they want to follow your work. How can folks reach you? How can folks follow and and support what you do? So there's a lot. (laughs) 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 Like any ADHDer, um, I... I think at the very beginning of this interview, I said I was a multi-passionate person, right? That also means I I have multi-faceted levels of things that I do, right? But 
if you wanna have the best uh, chance of finding out what I do, you can find me on Instagram. Um, my handle is at Izzy and ADHD, and Izzy is spelled I-Z-Z-I-E, right? So Izzy and ADHD. And all of my other ventures and ideas and projects sort of uh, use that page as a, a, a launch pad mm -hmm. to, um, to, to get going, right? At the moment, my big project, which I'm hoping is going to take off and everyone's going to be happy is um, something called the Accountable Otters Club, which is a community of like-minded people who support um, the development and uh, of your goals and making them turn into a real thing keep, by keeping you accountable, um, remaining accessible and honest. So we're, we're working hard uh, to make our dreams a reality over there. So we'd love to have you. That's Accountable Otters Club. <laughs> we'll make sure to include um, both of those and any other links you want us to include in the yes. show notes so folks can have fun and check everything out. I want to thank you, Izzy, uh, so much for coming on. I know you probably get a bunch of invitations. I know you are everywhere. I don't know how you show up and do everything that you do. When you said multi-passionate. I don't know either. All the pages and all the things. I feel like I see you everywhere. <laughs> I'm like, how? Oh. But I'm so happy that you that you came, that you decided to kind of show up for our audience and listeners and Thank you for sharing your experience and your knowledge with us. It's been a lot of fun. Absolutely. Your your listeners are a special group of people and there's I I couldn't just not come. I I had to to say what I needed to say to your uh, special people that are listening. So, thank you. <laughs> Thanks so much for joining me in the Grad School Fem Touring Podcast. If you liked what you heard, here are three ways you can support the show. The first is to make sure you're subscribed and leave a review of the podcast. If you leave me a review on Apple Podcasts, you become eligible for a free half-hour coaching session with me. Yes, that's right, one free session. Once you leave a review, you can email me a screenshot and I'll send you a link to sign up. The second way to show your love is to get yourself a copy of my free 15-page grad school fem touring kit, which includes resources on research, organization, grad school, and career prep. Go to gradschoolfemtouring.com slash kit to get it today. The third and last way to support my show is to follow me on social media. I am on Instagram, LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter, and occasionally TikTok with the handle at Grad School Fan Touring. Thanks again and until next time.